fun story. You know, songs that you loved in mm. the past. It's a, a location from your past, Studio Two. Yeah. Okay, so uh, it's a style from the past, you uh -huh. know. Did you have a, a sense at all of kind of stepping back slightly in time? Oh, yeah, a lot. Actually, all of us did. Because the thing about working in Studio Two in Abbey Road is they haven't changed it since before we worked there. And the idea is that there's so many great records come out of there, not just the Beatles, a lot of other good people, that why change it? I mean, you might mess it up. So it's one studio in the world, they've got a lot of other studios, EMI, so that's the one they don't change. So when you go back in it, or you see footage from it, it already looks like the past, because the, the location is the past. I think for all the guys in the band, it was kind of nostalgic, really. I mean, Dave Gilmore's worked there a lot with the Floyd, so he, he knows the studio well. But it's got, it is a great studio, it's a great room. Stuff sounds good in it. And you've got to take the formula. If it sounded good when we just thought up something really quickly with the Beatles, it ought to sound good now. You know, it smells, Studio Two smells. And people who'd come along who don't know that smell. To me, it's like a very homey smell. I go, whoa, yeah, you know, I'm back. Do you think you sing better if you think you have to sing good? Because you sound so great. Um, you you know, the, the truth about the singing was that since Linda died for a year, I haven't really sung. There's no opportunity to or no need to or whatever. You just don't get around to it. Only things I've done, I've been writing little bits. And you use your little writing voice. <laughs> it's a little voice, really. And then you learn how to project it when you come and make the record or whatever. That's the way I do it anyway. So I didn't actually know if I could sing. So I had a bad moment the Sunday evening before the Monday morning. I thought, wait a minute. Not only do I not know if I can still sing okay after a year of not really singing, I also don't know the bass parts to these numbers, and I've never done them before. Oh, great formula. But then I thought, wait a minute, the only thing is, the other guys don't know them either. That was the saving grace. I thought, well, that's okay. And that's what we did. I, I made up the bass part instantly, sang it while I was playing. Like, and again, I thought, well, if there's one thing I've had practice at, it's playing the bass and singing at the same time. If you think about it, that's my whole career with the Beatles and beyond. So you know, I'm probably like one of the most practiced people in the world at that thing. And the guys would say, well, that's a nice feel you've got on guitar. Do you want to put guitar on it? I said, no, I'm the bass player. You know? So we did it like that all week. So you didn't do any piano parts either? No, oh. bass only. You know, just listening to it generally, I mean, mm. there's a few really sad moments in it, but mm. generally it just feels like a celebration, very yeah. upbeat. Was that the spirit you were looking for, or does that just happen to be what Well, you no, that just happens because in rock and roll, that tends to be the spirit. Rock and roll tends not to be very sad. It tends to be very joyous, you know. Saturday night, I just got paid full about my money. Don't try to save. Heart says, go, go, have a time. Saturday night, baby, I feel fine, you know. That's the gist of most of your rock and roll lyrics. And I love that about it. But then there's songs that I remembered, like Lonesome Town, which was a Ricky Nelson song, and I was quite a big fan of his. And that's a sad song. Of course, now for me, it's more meaningful. It's, you know, when I'm singing it now, it means more than I ever meant before, just because it just does, you know. But it was good to do, you know, it's good to do those songs. It's kind of a little bit of like therapy in a way, you know, working with a band like that is a bit, you get it off your chest. So uh, yeah, there were, one or two sad songs, but mainly it's very upbeat, very energetic. I enjoyed doing it. You said it was like therapy, and I yeah. wondered how you meant that. Like, did you mean sometimes just, you know, when life is really hard, 
burying yourself in your work is the yeah. best thing you can do. Well, you know, people have said to me, one of the things to get over a kind of tragedy is to stay really busy, really busy. But I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I see that one, but it's just too easy. It's just a bit like denial. So I thought, well, for at least a year, I'm not going to do that. And so I didn't. You know, I just did whatever came along, whatever I felt good about. But I thought, well, maybe after the end of a year, I will start to think of what I want to do. And the immediate project that I, I'd been talking to Linda about was the rock and roll album. So I thought, well, that'll be good. I'll pick that up. It's simple. It's not too much thinking. You know, it's nice and basic, rock and roll. And I'm, I might enjoy doing it. That's exactly what happened, you know. And working with the guys, we did get busy. In fact, we got very busy that week. It was just like madness. But I think we all enjoyed it because it, it, it demanded of us that the fact that we played well quickly. And no one was allowed to say, I need an hour for a vocal warm-up. It's like, sorry, love, you haven't got an hour to do the song, never mind a vocal warm-up, you know. And so it was great. It, once we all understood what was going on, everyone really rose to the occasion. And I, I know from just chatting to the guys that uh, we had a ball. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, everyone, we're going to be continuing the long, arduous process of doing full-on deep dives into all of the projects that I touched on or mentioned during parts one and two of our four-part Driving Rain series. Now, originally, work on this episode began well before I even did the Concert for George episodes with Dylan Seavey, and before I even thought about doing the Feynman Rushes episode, but one thing led to another, and this kind of ended up being shelved a bit, and I genuinely forgot how much of this episode I actually had ready to go. Like, this has been pretty much a pre-packaged full episode for me to record right now, and so I'm looking forward to seeing how much of this I actually remember, or whether I'm going to spend most of the episode going, oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Thank you from me to me. But that is not the only bit of deja vu we are going to have on today's episode, folks, because not only are we dealing with the now familiar world of the post-Linda plight Paul, but we're also going to be talking about a certain McCartney's affinity for rock and roll covers with his second rock and roll covers album, 1999's Run, Devil, Run. Run, devil, run, the angels have been born Making winners out of silly battle, leave me boys done
This is the second album of rock and roll covers that we're going to cover here on the show. No pun, devil pun intended. And I know that this is an album that no doubt a lot of you are going to be excited about me covering, which was a bit of a pleasant surprise for me, actually. Because going into this, I thought that th- this was going to be one of those like largely forgotten McCartney albums like Kisses from the Bottom or something like that. Sorry to all the Kisses from the Bottom fans out there. But yeah, I was not prepared for how beloved this second album of covers was. Despite the fact that Paul has never performed or even mentioned any of these songs again, and despite being a rather obscure album within the wider discography, it has consistently maintained high-scoring reviews, high placings on individual rankings of Paul's albums, and general good favour within the fandom. And I'm not going to lie... That was really interesting for me as a podcaster, because there was an element of mystery going in. Like, why is this album so beloved? You know, I always love to challenge perceptions here on Paul on or nothing, and perhaps this time around it was time for me to have my own perceptions challenged. And hopefully we'll find out why this album is so beloved over the next three episodes. Although, i got to say, as much as I was excited, I was also slightly trepidatious. And why is that, I hear you ask? Well, the thing is, folks, I love Snover VCCR, or Chobber Beats, CCP, just so fucking much. And so my standards for Paul McCartney rock and roll covers are, from my perspective, quite high. And the issue is, following Chobber, I really wasn't enjoying a lot of all the live 50s rock and roll stuff that Paul had been doing. And I was kind of worried that the novelty will have worn off. Don't worry, even before the writing of this part one, I went into this album having already subverted the format somewhat and peeked ahead slightly. A couple of tracks were recommended to me and I ended up falling in love with them. Those were the title track and No Other Baby. Well, I don't want no other baby but you I don't want no other baby but you Cause no other baby can thrill me like you do I got a little woman And so I really was going to be going into this album with a positive mindset. You know, I'd seen what was considered to be the best material, so... You know, I knew that Paul wasn't going to be laying me down at all. He never does. I don't know why I always have this anxiety. But hey, that's just me. But I'm still up in the air with this album. And for anyone out there who thinks that I'm needlessly building suspense at the time of recording, I haven't even written my notes for episode two yet, so nothing is set in stone. And yes, you eagle-eared listeners, you did hear me correctly. Before this episode, before writing all of this, I had not heard Run Devil Run in full at all. It is genuinely still fresh in my mind, and the original concept of the podcast, you know, of this being my virginal journey through the discography of Macca, is still more or less intact. The takes are going to be hot, the opinions brand new. And it's also quite lovely, as well as quite strange, to think that well over half a decade since starting this show, now probably coming up to a decade now, that not only are there McCartney albums that I'm still not familiar with, but there are also McCartney albums that I have not heard at all, especially the classical stuff. And so 
it really is enjoyable for me to still have fresh content for my ears. I mean, we've just had the last Beatles song with Now and Then, and I'm sure there are many of you out there who are having that kind of existential dread of no more content, and uh, you bet your ass I'm dragging it out as long as possible, because who would ever want to give up that feeling? As always, being that I knew so little about this album going in, the whole experience was, of course, a learning experience for me, but not the easiest. Rather oddly, when putting this episode together, it was swiftly quite apparent that there is not all that much written about this album at all. And when it is mentioned, it's only in passing. You know, it's mentioned in Fab and Intimate Life of Paul McCartney for about a third of a page, or half a page of the McCartney biography by Philip Norman, but nothing more. And that's really quite frustrating for someone who, you know, wants to do these kind of deep dives. But you know what, folks? Even though the odds were against me, and in the face of sources more well-hidden than the Queen's secret cousins Catherine and Nerissa, I've actually managed to put together what I'd like to think is the most comprehensive look at Run Devil Run that you'll be able to find anywhere for free. I guarantee you that. As always, though, I probably have missed something, so if so, please drop me an email at pormacarnipod at gmail.com. But yeah, the format should be pretty familiar to veteran listeners by now. In this part one, we're going to be looking at all of the background and the backstory and the context behind Run Devil Run. In part two, I'll be joined by a guest where we'll be going through the album song by song, track by track and giving our thoughts. And then for part three of this, I thought it'd be fun to do a film review of the Cavern Club gig in 1999 that Paul did in accompaniment with this album. And I will be joined by two people who I've had on this show and who are also at that gig. So lots to look forward to there. Also, uh, just before we start, there is one little issue about this album that I do need to resolve, that I do need your help on. Again, pumpkinapod.gmail.com. Um, what type of album is this? Like, where does this belong in Paul's discography? And where does this belong on my shelf? You know me, folks, I love a good organisation and an even better reorganisation of vinyl. So if you say to someone who wants to rearrange their 12-inch collection of official studio albums and cover albums, where do you put this? Like, I know this is considered to not be a part of official McCartney musical canon, like the main canon, but with its three original tracks, is it really just a covers album? Does it kind of somehow belong with the other mainline studio releases in the way that Unplugged kind of is? I mean, look, I know that this is only interesting to a very small percentage of you out there, and even then it's only a small percentage of those of you who are collectors, but these are the things that truly do keep me up at night. And it's made me realise that the only real way to own a copy of Run Devil Run without running into this is by buying that gorgeous little red box set that came out whereby they broke down the whole album into a bunch of double A-side singles. And so by owning that version, it means it's more of a display piece and can be left on its own and separate without worrying about its placement on your shelf or in your catalogue or even like the Dewey Decimal System. But yeah, enough, enough of all that. Before I get too wrapped up in what type of album this is, we should probably talk about the album itself and how it came to be. So get ready to rock and roll, everyone. It's time to run, devil, run. Come on, baby, just let me love. 
legendary Paul McCartney returns to the roots of rock and roll. This is the McCartney you love, and this is the new album you've waited for. Run, Devil, Run includes 12 of McCartney's hand-picked rock and roll favorites on CD. Order now and you'll receive this bonus original artist CD with four original recordings of songs featured on Run, Devil, Run. Run, Devil, Run. It's pure Paul McCartney. It's real rock and roll. And it's available now. Call the number on your screen now to order Paul McCartney's new album, Run, Devil, Run, and receive the original artist bonus CD, all for $17.98 plus shipping and handling, or send a check or money order to the address shown. Call now. Right, everyone. If we're going to be covering the backstory for this album, we must first ask ourselves a question. Why now? Why is Paul McCartney choosing to, in 1999 of all years, release an album of covers of old 50s standards. For example, it's only been 11 years since his last album of rock and roll covers, Chobber BCCP, and so it's easy to see why this might feel a little too soon. But, in Paul's defence, in that time he had also put out three major studio albums, two Dancy Trancy albums as The Fireman, and two classical albums, with more from all three on the way, so it's not like he needed to resort to doing this kind of covers album as a backup due to a lack of creativity or anything. So what gives? Well, the simplest way to put it, folks, is that this is an album that Paul made because he hadn't made an album in a while. Well, then the question becomes, why hadn't he made an album in a while? Flaming Pie, his last studio release, was an impressive hit and his forays into dance and classical music have been moderately successful. So, why a sabbatical all of a sudden? So, why in the late 90s was there an unexpected sabbatical from his life of constant musical production? Well, if you haven't worked it out yet, folks, and being that this episode ties back to our Driving Rain series, it should be clear to all of you now that Obviously, 1999, the year of release for Run Devil Run, is the year after the passing of his wife and the mother of his children, Linda McCartney. She tragically passed away in the April of 98, and it wouldn't be until the spring of the next year till he started setting up the sessions for Run Devil Run. So you can see just from that massive gap in production just how much of an effect the loss of her had on Paul creatively. Because for McCartney, there are no years off, there are no breaks. He writes songs on his holidays. You know, he's like a shark, he just doesn't stop. And so for him to commit to not committing anything to tape for a year is far more shocking and impactful than it may first appear to, say, the average Joe on the street. When Paul was being interviewed by USA Today, he touched on this break, saying, I had a year of doing nothing. Everyone had said to me, you must keep busy. I said, no, that's like denial. I refused to get busy. So I had the whole year of letting my emotion come sweeping over me. And it did. It's weird when someone that close to you dies. People say, oh, my dad died, so I know exactly what you're going through. And I say, no, you don't. A girlfriend of 30 years, the tightness and the intimacy and the stuff we went through, you don't know. It's different. 
Both my parents have died, and it's nothing like that. We were supposed to be on a porch in rocking chairs when we were 80. Suddenly, that's all taken away. So clearly Paul is consumed by the loss of Linda at this point, and he's thinking about her constantly, and it's easy to assume that he's probably thinking about what she would have wanted him to do with himself in this point, you know, what his next move should be. And of course, it would be very much in the way that she would have you know, said similar things to him during the recording of his first album, and that would be to pull himself up by his bootstraps and keep making music. Now, this is the part where I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, how did this end up with him recording an album of rock and roll covers? Well, thanks to this interview in Mojo, something we're going to be referring to a lot on this episode, folks, it suddenly starts to make a lot more sense. Paul explains the genesis of the concept here, stating, Linda was very keen. I'd said for years I'd love to make a rock and roll record. I'd talked of other things, an old standards Fred Astaire, Cole Porter album, but this one was more than just a whim. I thought, I've got to do this before the 20th century ends. So it was the next thing I was going to do. Then Lynn died. She was really keen that I do it, so that was enough motivation. I'd better get this done. No pissing around. Now, folks, considering that we've just seen the release of Now and Then, you know, the last Beatles song where Paul fulfilled his objective to complete the final song that was for Paul, from John, that whole narrative, obviously that lines up exactly with this right here. You know, whether it's about fulfilling unfulfilled potential or having no regrets, or whether it's about making himself feel a bit better about their passing, Whatever it is, clearly, it's very important to Paul to fulfil the wishes of those who have passed away. And so, now more than ever, does this behaviour seem to have been inevitable from Paul. Though it's still quite an interesting thought process in terms of how Paul got to this final idea. Like, there are several quotes from him where he talks about how Linda wished he did more rock music and he rocked a little harder and played more guitar. And so, I'm not convinced that her saying he should he should do a rock and roll album didn't mean that he should just do more songs like Where My Love, Not Such A Bad Boy, and Let Me Roll It. But he immediately ties it to something that he was already thinking of doing, which is this kind of standards thing again. And I don't know how much of this in reality is quote unquote her idea, but that's clearly how he sees it. And that's the idea in his head and that's all that matters. And regardless of whose idea it was, it still makes sense for Paul to do this kind of move, especially when you go back through his history, because somehow Paul is always seemingly playing rock and roll standards just before Titanic shifts in his life. Just before the Beatles got big, like in Hamburg, they were playing 10,000 hours worth of old rock and roll standards and covers. Then in the Get Back sessions, one of the most tense and awkward and stressful moments in Paul McCartney's entire life. He was playing rock and roll standards with his buddies, as well as taking the Beatles sound back to a, a simpler rock and roll style. And then when his career was in the toilet in the 80s, he revitalized himself both personally and in the eyes of critics, once again, by doing an album of rock and roll covers. And yeah, you could argue that just Paul plays rock and roll covers throughout his life at every single moment and so whenever something big happens he's going to be playing them but I think there is somewhat of a link here. 
you know. Doing these rock and roll covers is definitely something Paul enjoys doing and feels comfortable doing and will return to like clockwork. Although the only difference this time around is that the move to play some rock and roll standards and covers has come after the latest Titanic shift in his life. And on top of all of that, of course, he'd done loads of rock and roll covers for the Unplugged album recently, as well as on the setlist for his last two major record-breaking world tours. So it's not like this kind of album was without precedent at all either. Still, regardless of said precedent, as McCartney continues on with the Mojo interview, he starts getting all metagame on us and talks about doing this kind of album because it was also what was least expected of him at that moment. Although, from the way he describes it, he acts like it wasn't intended to be that way. Mm, whatever you say, Paul. Of course, if you know anything about Paul McCartney, you will know that, loss of Linda or not, the prospect of doing something that is unexpected of him will be a massive draw. He says, And the nice thing now is, people are expecting a certain kind of record from me after Linda died. I've heard it from a few sources. I wonder what he'll do now. He'll be very introspective, sad songs for Linda. And it's quite nice to go against the current. Though, I've not done that on purpose. It's like when Give Ireland Back to the Irish was banned, and I happened to do Mary Had a Little Lamb on the next record, and people said, Oh, that's two fingers up to the people who banned that. They can't ban this one. And it wasn't true. I didn't do it for that reason, but it was perceived like that. So, with this album being so inextricably connected to Linda, and with her death being such an impactful event in McCartney's life, it's hard for the listener not to interpret this album to be, in its own strange little way, the unofficial Linda McCartney tribute album. And yeah, I mean, you could argue that any album that he put out the first year after her death was going to be a Linda tribute album, or that many, if not all, of the albums over the next couple of years would all be tributes to her. But again, the fact that he saw the project as something she would have wanted is all that mattered. When the album's producer, Chris Thomas, was on the Talk More Talk videocast with our boy Ken Michaels, he called this album a cathartic exercise for McCartney, as well as directly framing it as his own This Is For Linda album. I mean, there's your smoking gun, folks. There's your melted steel beams. It's pretty damning evidence. And... It is the final piece of the puzzle as far as I'm concerned. Run Devil Run equals the Linda album. No ifs, ands, or buts. Though it's not like people at the time weren't aware of the very obvious, to pardon the phrase, spectre of Linda over this album. During the interview with Mojo, the interviewer even comments on how angry McCartney sounds on this album. Paul replied, It's just me singing. I don't know if I was angry or not. I can't remember. When you've got to stand up and play bass and sing too, there's no time to think about anything else, apart from, how does the bass go? It was just the spirit of the week. As I said, we outlawed thinking. Clearly, the idea of being so busy that he can't even tell how angry he is after the loss of his wife was something of an attraction to Paul. As we can't forget, there is a far more pragmatic and functional use for this album's existence. For, as much as Paul had and wanted to have Linda in his thoughts at this time and to take a year off from recording, we all knew that had to end sometime. He was never going to be on sabbatical forever. And so it makes sense that 
for his own sake, he might use this album as an opportunity to bring himself back and in doing so, not just have all of his thoughts be around Linda and maybe even not think about her, at least for a short while whilst making the album. To quote Paul DeNoyer in his book Conversations with McCartney, which was actually one of our very first episodes, he describes the Run Devil Run sessions as a clearing of emotional decks. And with a phrase like that, you can see this whole venture as an attempt by Paul to flip a switch in himself and to, for lack of a better phrase, revert himself back to factory settings. This is all about feeling normal again after a period of zero normalcy whatsoever. And with Baca, there is no greater way to feel normal again than by making an album. It is literally keeping his mind focused and making him happy. That's all that matters here. We've seen it time and time again with McCartney 1, Band on the Run, McCartney 2, and, funnily enough, Chopper BCCP. And so, with Paul having suffered arguably the greatest tragedy in his life, or at least certainly the greatest tragedy in his life after his mother's death, it is no wonder he made this album. He didn't have enough solo material to make an album proper, and nor does he want to commit to something like that, which is going to take weeks and weeks and months and months in the first place. And so it's going to be something like Run Devil Run, something that was going to be fun, fast, and act as a simple, achievable diving board back into the world of record making. Possibly more so than any other Paul McCartney album, this record was more functional and utilitarian than artistic in any of its endeavours or outcome. However, according to Chris Thomas himself in Peter Ayn Carlin's Paul McCartney A Life, it did work. He says, These were just incredible sessions. The wild abandon came back, and his smile came back. Also, and I know it's pretty late in the segment to bring this up now, but if we follow the timelines exactly, then a certain fact cannot be ignored. Yes, folks, for it was right around this time that a certain Miss soon to be Mrs. Heather Mills entered the scene. Her original life plan was that she was going to get married to filmmaker Chris Terrell on the 8th of August 1998 and be on that honeymoon. But those of you with good memories will know that she instead absconded with Paul to the Hamptons instead. So with this album being recorded in the March of 99, you cannot ignore the fact that this also took place during the early fledgling stages of the relationship between Paul and Heather. Now folks, don't go crazy here, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and burn down this entire podcast, but it seems like she might have had something to do with why this album exactly came out when it did. In Howard Soon's book, Fab and Intimate Life of Paul McCartney, on the aforementioned half page from earlier, he writes that McCartney was, quote, rejuvenated by his new relationship with Heather Mills. And to be honest, that idea isn't the most outlandish thing I've ever heard of. You know, if this is still early days for them, you know, before Paul goes to India and buys her a giant diamond, then maybe he isn't taking this too seriously. And so maybe there aren't the same kind of moral quandaries that he might have during the Driving Rain sessions as a result of that album being two women. Run Devil Run is not at all about Heather Mills, don't get me wrong, but her impact is probably no less important. Her presence and her um, 
ability to help rejuvenate, quote-unquote, the grieving McCartney cannot be underestimated. The indisputable dates just line up too well to be ignored. And whilst it may not be as romantic or as poignant as Linda helping Paul out in his post-Beatle rut with the McCartney album or anything like that, but as utterly heretical as it sounds, the much-maligned Heather Mills certainly played a key role in helping Paul get back on his feet after the loss of the lovely Linda. Look, if nothing else, if Run Devil Run was just something that allowed Paul McCartney to get out of bed and smile again, then it certainly was worth it in the long run. Although, as we've also seen with the albums that I mentioned earlier, when Paul has his back against the wall, he also makes some of his best material. So, no matter what, Run Devil Run was always going to be a pretty noteworthy release. I'm not saying provenance can turn a mediocre album into a good album or a bad album into a mediocre album or anything like that, but as we've seen on numerous talent shows throughout the years like The X Factor and Pop Idol and all of that, having a little backstory certainly helps, doesn't it? The legendary Paul McCartney returns to the roots of rock and roll. Rock and roll, you know, you either just do it or you don't. This is the McCartney you love, and this is the new album you've waited for. Run Devil Run, now available through this special television offer. Run Devil Run includes 12 of McCartney's hand-picked rock and roll favorites on CD for $17.98. Order now and you'll receive this bonus original artist CD with four original recordings of songs featured on Run Devil Run. Run Devil Run also features three new McCartney originals, including What It Is. Well, I actually wrote that while Lynn was still alive, so that had sentimental attachments for me. Run Devil Run. It's pure Paul McCartney. It's real rock and roll, and it's available now. Call the number on your screen now to order Paul McCartney's new album, Run, Devil, Run, and receive the original artist's bonus CD, all for $17.98, plus shipping and handling. Or send a check or money order to the address shown. Call now. Right, now that we know that Paul is committed to making an album, and why, we can now focus on who he was going to get to bring it to life. So, as per usual with the show, if the producer is not Paul himself, we do an extensive retrospective on said producer leading up to the recording of the album, and that is exactly what we're going to do here today. Here today. Of course, this ongoing narrative that is the life of Paul McCartney is one with an incredibly grand and expansive cast of characters, and even though a lot of them are leading men and leading ladies in other stories, they may only be one-time brief cameos in McCartney's. However, from time to time, fate reaches out and a lucky few are afforded, are allowed to work with Paul several times over. One of those blessed individuals is producer Chris Thomas. And who is Chris Thomas? I hear less than half of you asking. Well, it's a long story. Certainly longer than saying he's just another producer, because that really isn't true. Again, I didn't 
know a whole lot about him before coming to this episode, but after going through his history and researching the projects he worked on, I mean, I can only say I have the utmost respect for this guy's career. I mean, the influence this guy has had for four straight decades is absolutely insane, and his list of credits is a real who's who of big, big names. And I can't believe they all worked with him. I can't believe I I haven't known about this guy in more detail sooner, to be honest. And whilst many of you out there might know some of the elements that we're going to go through today, I can guarantee you that there are going to be a few shocking moments for you as well. You'll go, oh my god, he was on that as well. Trust me, it goes deep. However, the story of Chris Thomas goes way back further in the Paul McCartney timeline than most of the other collaborators we get to talk about on this show. And that is because he goes all the way back to the Beatle days. She's not a girl who misses much Oh yeah with the touch of the velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane the man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime a soap impression of his wife which he ate and donated to the national trust After constantly writing to, slash, harassing Beatle producer George Martin about getting into the record production industry, at the age of 21, Thomas was hired as an assistant to George Martin himself, and was eventually allowed to attend sessions at EMI Studios, first for the band The Hollies, and then, in 1968, The Beatles themselves. He was fortunate enough to be there for much of the recording of The Beatles' self-titled double album, aka The White Album. Midway through these awkward sessions, though, something happened that would secure Thomas's place in history. His boss, George Martin, fed up with the Beatles and their treatment of him at the time, decided to take a holiday mid-session. However, much to Thomas's own surprise, rather than being ejected from the sessions because his boss wasn't there at the time, Martin instead proposed that Thomas continue working with the band in his absence as a de facto producer. Thomas recalls the situation as thus. I had just come back from holiday myself, and when I came in, there was a little letter on the desk that said, Dear Chris, hope you had a nice holiday. I'm off on mine now. Make yourself available to the Beatles. Neil and Mal know you're coming down. So, when I was reading the sources, and it said that Thomas fully produced the songs Birthday and Happiness is a Warm Gun, I was honestly quite dubious as to what that meant. As we know... The Beatles themselves, by this point, would have been more than familiar with the process of recording songs, and mainstays like engineers Jeff Emmerich and Ken Scott, as well as their road manager Mal Evans, would have been there to do a lot of the technical button-pushing anyway. So I was like, okay, how much is Chris Thomas actually producing, and how much of it is just him, you know, doing some real winding and tape cutting? And, as it turns out, he actually is the full-on producer. It is legit. 
The kid was a natural, and he clearly used his extensive time sitting in on the sessions to learn the ropes. I mean, a song like Birthday was probably a relatively simple recording job for everyone involved, but Happiness is a Warm Gun, with its range of styles and all of its tempo changes, is an unquestionable achievement in production, and I'm sure Thomas must have felt great every time Lennon asked for his opinion on how his new Donovan-esque plucking guitar playing sounded. Of course, this is all a massive achievement for him, especially for someone so young, and anyone would be overjoyed with such a credit in their resumes. But that's the thing. He wasn't technically credited. You know, you can go on Discogs and you can read lots of books and find it out, but nothing by the actual Beatles that you can buy in shops lets you know that he was on this. Like, he couldn't have gone back home and showed his parents, for example, you know? And his list of uncredited contributions does not end there, either. I don't know if this information was officially listed somewhere else at the time, but nowhere on the album, again, does it mention that Thomas also played keyboards on four songs from the White Album. Uh, he did harpsichord for Piggies, Mellotron for the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, and piano for both Long 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 and Savoy Truffle. However, credit isn't everything. You don't need everyone else to know you did something, you just need the right people to know. And with all of the work he did on the White Album, it did lead to everyone who needed to know in the music industry knowing he worked on the album. You know, he's been introduced to a lot of the right people here, he's networked, he will now have opportunities that he can now capitalise on. And besides, I don't think he even minded about the lack of a credit, and he more just enjoyed the experience for what it was. We have another quote here, he said, I've been very fortunate in having ridiculous fantasies come true. For instance, playing with the Beatles on Bungalow Bill, with George Martin up there producing. Incredible. So, after his life-changing experience with the Beatles, Chris Thomas was ready to prove to the world that his contributions to the most important band ever wasn't just beginner's luck or the band doing all the work for him. So, in a rather shrewd move, retroactively, his first solo credit as a producer was not for a pop band or even modern music, and it was instead an orchestral instrumental titled Dick Barton Theme, brackets The Devil's Gallop, for a group called The Bread and Beer Band. Now folks, I had never heard of that title before when I first came across it, as I'm sure many of you hadn't, but I'm going to play the piece of music for you now, and I bet a large majority of you, especially the ones that watch British TV, will recognise it immediately and go, oh my god, it's that thing! Right, let's roll the tape, Johnny.
So yeah, apparently Chris Thomas was indeed the producer for this classic piece of classical music. It was originally used for the show on the BBC called Dick Barton Special Agent, which I believe is a radio show, but it swiftly found its way into the world of comedy. Yes, its light-hearted, sweeping, jovial nature lends itself perfectly to the world of amusement, being featured in the works of The Goons, Monty Python, The Goonies, Dad's Army, Danger Mouse, 30 Rock, and in a brilliant UK sketch show called That Mitchell and Webb Look, where it is the unofficial theme tune for the ongoing sketch about two very mentally ill homeless gentlemen, oh, it's so bad when I say it out loud, uh, called The Adventures of Sir Digby Chicken Caesar. Anyway, Chris Thomas moved on from that, and his first fully produced album would follow swiftly with the self-titled 1969 release for the Climax Chicago Blues Band. Lots of difficult names today. Of course, they're not exactly a contemporary household name, but he wouldn't have to wait long for one of them either, as he would go on to work extensively with a little band called Procol Harum. And no, Thomas did not produce A Whiter Shade of Pale, the song that was playing when Paul met Linda. No, even that would have been too much of a coincidental stretch for the Beatles' narrative. Instead, he began right after that period with their 1970 album, Home. Now, something we're going to see a lot of with Chris Thomas is his ability to create sustained and ongoing relationships with artists, and Procol Harum is the first of them. With Thomas doing their 1971 album, Broken Barricades, their live album from 1972, Procol Harum Live, in concert with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, their 1973 album, Grand Hotel, and their 1974 album, Exotic Birds and Fruit. The next act Thomas worked with was Roxy Music, and he would produce consistently high-quality albums for them throughout the early 70s. The first album he did for them, their second, 1973's For Your Pleasure, made it to number four on the UK album charts, and it was their last to feature Brian Eno on synthesizers. He did another album for them in 73 called Stranded, not their uh, 1974 album Country Life, and then returned for their 1975 album Siren, which includes their number two hit, Love Is The Drug.
So after doing a lot of good work with a couple of bands that are very big and very important but still not quite massive, Thomas would carry on that trend with work with one of the poster children for that specific category, a certain other band signed to the Apple label. Oh yes, Thomas was not content with producing for the White Album, playing on the White Album, and producing music for the now-married McCartney's favourite band ever, but he would choose to further entrench himself in that camp by producing for Badfinger. Granted, his first collaboration with them was their last album ever on the Apple label, but it still keeps your name in the mix in terms of Paul and the other three big boys. That album had the wonderful title of Ass, Bad Thing is 1973 release, and in 1974 he would record two more with them, being their self-titled album and Wish You Were Here. Sadly though, none of these albums even broke the top 100 on the US Billboard and there's no information about them on the UK charts at all, so hardly the biggest success. And annoyingly, none of the three big reasonable hit singles for Badfinger were produced by Thomas, and so I have absolutely no idea what I would actually play to highlight their work, so we're going to move on. And thankfully, I won't be long without a good audio clip, as Thomas would swiftly start to step up his game and start to work on ever more daring, ambitious, forward-thinking projects. The first of which would be to simply... I don't know, alter rock music forever and define the archetype of an entire genre of music? Yeah, quite the leap indeed. And if you, if you haven't worked it out already, yes, Chris Thomas produced the iconic, seminal 1977 album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols by The Sex Pistols. Let's hear the clip. Yes, everyone, Chris Thomas, the spotty little kid sitting in on the White Album sessions, went on to produce one of the most iconic albums ever. And it's an album that is easily the most emblematic of its own entire genre. Now, I know that the Sex Pistols were, to some degree, a corporate boy band that was made by a studio to capitalise on the scene and that the American punk scene has never given the Sex Pistols the time of day and is seen to be way more culturally pure and important. But, folks, whatever, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, is one of the most important albums ever here in the UK. And I am not exaggerating when I say that. Honestly, everyone, I know that this is a Paul McCartney podcast, but culturally, 
Thomas is probably going to be remembered in the annals of history more for this album than all of the work he did with Paul McCartney put together. I'm sorry, but it's true. These recordings that Thomas captured and helped facilitate will forever be a part of the British lexicon and common musical parlance. Of course, it doesn't compare to Beatlemania, but nothing is. And it still occupies the top spot in its own minute corner of the music world. But then again, I'll also draw you to this quote from the ever-trustworthy Wikipedia. In 1987, Rolling Stone magazine named the album the second best of the previous 20 years behind only the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The same magazine ranked it 73rd on their list of 500 greatest albums of all time in 2020. In 2006, it was chosen by Time magazine as one of the 100 greatest albums ever. How about that then, eh, folks? Never mind the Buzzcocks, here's the Sex Pistols, would also be highly popular and profitable. The album debuted at number one on the UK album charts. It achieved advance orders of 125,000 copies after a week of its release, and it went gold only a few weeks later. It remained a bestseller for nearly a year, spending 48 weeks in the top 75. The second single from the album, God Save the Queen, was a number one smash hit, and the subsequent two singles would also make their way into the top 10. So, after several years of pursuing the reliable work of doing consistently solid albums for reasonable, moderately well-known bands, the first time Chris Thomas takes a chance and goes and gives it his all on something new and different and interesting, it pays off significantly, allowing him even more creative freedom in the future. So, Thomas is now a hot ticket, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that the next year, in 1978, he would essentially just take advantage of his previous punk success by producing an album for that year's big punk slash new wave group, the Tom Robinson Band. That album, titled Power in the Darkness, got to number four in the UK album charts, and the group's first single, the non-album single 2468 Motorway, got to number five in the UK charts. Actually, that song's pretty badass too. Let's hear some of that please as well, Johnny. Also in 78, Chris Thomas would go on to produce Guitar Graffiti, the solo album for Chris Spedding. Now, Thomas had already produced for Spedding before, but the only reason I'm really bringing this up, the only reason I find it interesting, is how Spedding basically connects everything in Chris Thomas's life. Spedding had worked as a session musician 
for previous members of Roxy Music, Brian Ferry and Brian Eno, and even toured with the original Roxy Music. He was a close friend of Chrissy Hind and would tour regularly with The Pretenders, and he was even the man who helped record the earliest Sex Pistol demos. Again, it doesn't matter what you know now, does it? Thomas's next project would be to take a band whose previous producer thought that they were going nowhere and instead took them straight to number one in the UK album charts and the top ten in the US. This band that I just mentioned actually was a little outfit that you may have heard of called The Pretenders and the album was called Pretenders. So yeah, of all people, mega producer Nick Lowe was the original guy working on this album before he got tired of it all. And Chris Thomas, presumably upon hearing something that Lowe didn't, got in whilst the band was fresh and cheap and made a nice little earner for himself. Thomas's work with the Pretenders would end up being continually fruitful for them as he would net them a further two top ten albums and high-charting singles either side of the coast. Those albums were 1981's Pretenders 2 and 1984's Learning to Crawl. So, again folks, for anyone keeping track of the names, it does seem rather fortuitous that Thomas would forge this long-lasting relationship with The Pretenders because the lead singer of The Pretenders was Chrissy Hind, and Chrissy Hind's best friend for the longest of time was who, of course? Linda fucking McCartney. Well played, Chris. Well played. So, having now produced Paul's old band, he and his wife's favourite band, and his wife's best friend's band, it was now time for Thomas to finally get it over with, stop the flirting, stop the teasing, and produce a full-on album for Solo McCartney. Well, not Solo McCartney, more specifically, Paul McCartney and Wings. Or, to some people, just Wings. And of course, as we all know, that album was... 1979's Back to the Egg. What does she get for all the love she gave you? There on the ladder of regret. Daytime, nighttime suffering is all she gets. Where are the prizes for the game she finally get to listen to some McCartney music on this episode. Phew, that feels better, doesn't it? But yeah, this is the part of the story that we have covered extensively on this podcast already, so go back and check out Podcasts Passing if you haven't already. But to do a quick Cliff Notes version of events for what would later become Wings' last album, Paul went back to his old colleague Chris Thomas as producer. Well, co-producer rather notoriously, for this album, Paul was rather blatantly looking to chase some new fresh trends in order to appeal to the modern youth. And so, 
logically if you wanted to chase the sounds of punk and new wave as well as work with the best in the business as well as perhaps even work with someone he knows then who better to hire than Chris fucking Thomas, right? I mean, it's all very serendipitous to the point that it almost seems scripted. But no, sometimes things just work out that way. Although one might argue that it didn't quite work out. Whether it's due or not, whether it's fair or not, whether it's based on fact or fiction, Back to the Egg was, and always kind of will be, viewed as a failure in McCartney's eyes. The album sold, but not well enough, and the singles charted, but not highly enough. It wasn't like a coup de grace that quote-unquote killed wings or anything, don't get me wrong, but it was certainly a major element in its eventual collapse. And was that any of Chris Thomas's fault? No, not really. Maybe Solo Paul could have pulled off the concept of working with him and doing something more punky and anarchic and different and not wingsy, but the Wings outfit, especially what it had become following Speed of Sound and London Town, was not equipped to deliver that kind of music to that kind of audience. I mean, it was a nice idea. It might have worked well on paper, but not in practice. Still, Thomas gave it a good go. It's a very well-produced album. There is a diverse variety of styles and genres and there was seemingly nothing McCartney could throw at him that he couldn't do. Plus, because of this album, because of his punky new wavy influence, we do get enough Wings quote-unquote hard rockers to more than make up for the last couple of full albums. And anyway, spoiler alert, Chris Thomas becomes the producer on Run Devil Run, so clearly there was no blame put on his shoulders from Paul's perspective, or any bad blood between the two of them. And now that we've finished the 1970s and that we've had a bit of Paul on this podcast once again, we are going to be taking a quick break, a quick little recess as we tackle the matter of the... Housekeeping! Housekeeping. Now, I'm taking some advice from one of my Twitter followers, and in reference to my output recently, especially with the massive Denny Lane episode, he did say sometimes less is more. And when you do end up spending a month on a four and a half hour episode, it does highlight how sometimes I should just focus on getting these kind of 90 minute episodes out every week. And so we're going to do the backstory for this episode as a two parter, not because it's a big driving rain length one, but I'm annoyed that I'm not getting stuff out on a more regular basis. And so that is what we are going to be doing going into 2024. I hope you all enjoy it. But yeah, let's crack on with the news. And despite the fact that my last news segment was already a couple of weeks old when I released it, there really hasn't been anything mahoosive out there in the world of McCartney or Beatles. But there are still a few nuggets that I personally found a little interesting. So let's begin, first of all, with something that I am sure no one saw coming that also makes total sense when you stop and think about it. According to Forbes magazine, McCartney 2 has been getting a bit of a bump up in the album charts. Yes, the modern album charts. With the album getting all the way up to number 177 on the US Billboard Top 100 Albums chart and number 39 on the Alternative Rock chart in late December last year, 
and now it has managed to climb all the way up to number 91 on Billboard and number 16 on the Alternative Rock chart. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, of course, this is fucking crazy and awesome at the same time. Uh, McCartney 2 in the charts, cool, I'll run with that. It's great to have a 40-year-old album like this still make headlines, but just one scroll through a, a couple of comment sections, and this anomaly is immediately revealed. The answer, folks, is twofold. First of all, it's almost all down to streaming. Maca can shift vinyl, but only new product. He was not selling enough physical copies of McCartney 2 to get this high up in the charts, that's for sure. And the other element is Christmas. Yes, even though McCartney does name drop McCartney 2 more times than I can count, the fact of the matter is, is that this spike in popularity is purely due to Wonderful Christmas Time being technically included on the track listing for that album. So the Ouroboros of the music industry really is consuming itself here, folks. And it is becoming clearer and clearer that when it comes to Christmas music, the standards have already been firmly established and nothing new will seemingly ever be added to the canon. This means that any previously established Christmas hit, even supposedly annoying ones like Wonderful Christmas Time, are going to be permanently evergreen and profitable. And you cannot underestimate the number of streams and downloads Christmas songs get during the Christmas period. Also, oh, actually, you could probably throw in the fact that Wonderful Christmas Time would be a part of Christmas compilation albums if they're still sold these days. Again, if you don't believe me, here in the UK, our recent Christmas number one was Last Christmas by Wham, another decades-old song. And so it's not hard to conceive that the same trend had greatly benefited McCartney 2 slash Wonderful Christmas Time. In more Liverpudlian-based news, we have seen the return of an old Beatles venue, Yes, the Jacaranda, a small coffee house that Lennon name-checks in the Get Back movie, actually, is a place where, amongst other things, Ringo first cut his teeth with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, the Beatles had their first ever gig there after changing their name to the Beatles, still in the pre-Ringo days, though, and the original manager, Alan White, secured the Beatles' first tour of Hamburg. However, the Jacaranda is not returning purely as a cafe and venue to foster the greatest bands of all time. No, it is now also going to be a very well-stocked vinyl store. So, now you can buy your new copy of Band on the Run Half Speed Remaster, have a cup of coffee, and listen to a live band, all while standing in a little piece of Beatle history. Then, as usual with these new segments, we have a couple of Beatle-based auctions these past few weeks. The first of which is an abstract painting called Images of a Woman, and that's going up for auction in February 2024. You might not know the name of this painting, but you definitely have seen it, and you've seen photographs of the Beatles painting it. And yes, it is that painting that all four of the Beatles painted at the same time whilst being holed up in their hotel room in Japan 1966. The strict Japanese security forbade the Beatles to leave and so they had to stay shut in and this signed painting was the result of their boredom 
with one witness saying that the Beatles had never been more quiet and content than when they were working on that painting. It is said to be going for at least $600,000. And as always, I have to do the, the same joke. If you want me to afford that one, folks, I'll need a few more Patreon patrons. And then we have a slightly less flamboyant auction, this time for an autograph book that contains all four signatures from the Fabs, as well as part of a broken plectrum used by McCartney himself. The original cover, owned by another Brummy like me named Louisa Wayne, got the signatures at a gig at De Montfort Hall near Birmingham. But sadly, she died of a blood clot at the age of 24. Talk about provenance of an item there, folks, eh? The book is set to fetch around £4,500. And finally, we have a couple of deaths to report. Obviously, we're in the 2020s now. Everyone who was a part of this story originally was born in the 50s, so it's to be expected, unfortunately. The first of which is the passing of Leon Wilds. Not Wilds, sadly. Uh, Wilds, that's W-I-L-D-E-S, was an American lawyer who became part of music history when he represented John Lennon as the former Beatle tried to get his US visa extended. Of course, this was a big fracas. The government was always trying to get Lennon out of the country for the threat that he posed to Nixon's re-election. And fortunately, amidst the Watergate scandal and Nixon's resignation, Wilds found a loophole in immigration drug law. And so he eventually managed to get an order in October 1975 that reversed the deportation order and Lennon got his visa extended. Of course, he's a pretty minor character in the overall narrative, but that doesn't mean he still wasn't swarmed by Beatle fans at conventions. And closing out this section, we have another death in the Beatle world, and that has been the passing of Annie Nightingale, MBE. Now, since I am well behind on listening to I Am The Egg Pod, and because my broader Beatles knowledge is truly awful, I didn't know all too much about her, which is a shame because she really did do a lot. In addition to the aforementioned MBE, she is most well known for being the first woman to host a radio show on Radio 1 here in the UK. She also has a bunch of Beatle run-ins too. Whilst interviewing Mary Hopkin, not only was Paul there as an active participant, but he also jokingly proposed to her on air. Joke or not, that was surely amazing for Annie. She was also the first person to speak with Paul after Lennon's death, with Paul calling into her Lennon tribute radio show and thanked her for her tact. And, rather tragically, she missed a quote-unquote Beatle reunion at Eric Clapton and Patty Boyd's wedding as her car broke down on the way to the ceremony. And that is the end of our news segment. We're going to move on to the plugs now. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or nothing written content, check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the only place where you can find episodes of Macca in Your Attic, which is our little sister show where me and a guest go through their Paul McCartney slash Beatle collections. Be sure to go and check that out if you haven't already. But if you really want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, then please give us some form of quote-unquote interaction. 
Whether you can like the episode, give us a thumbs up, a retweet, a comment, some stars, uh, post it on a Facebook group, whatever. If you can spread the Paul or Nothing word, it is greatly appreciated. It really boosts us up in the ever-oppressive algorithm. But if you want to help out directly, if you want to help see the show grow, help me keep the lights running, maybe even help me get access to product to review on the show, then please consider joining our Patreon page. Patreon, as I've mentioned a million times before, is a platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it is not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get one week's early access to all episodes of Macket in your attic. You get access to episodes in progress. So if I'm like halfway through something and I haven't put something out for a while, I might just upload that, you know, wet the beak a little. You get access to the video feed. So anything I record over Zoom goes immediately unedited and with video straight onto the Patreon. You get access to lost and bonus episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get access to all the scripts that I do for the show. And also there is the exclusive Patreon bonus vlog series where every couple of weeks I do a little bonus episode and tackle a topic, just something small and cute and fun that I can't quite fit onto the regular show. That is exclusive. There are, there's, there's well over 20 episodes of that. That's all available. If that sounds like something you might be interested in and you like what I'm doing here at Poor or Nothing, then please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family. A family of people including Carol E. Cantor, this Swan, Sam Hode, Nikolai Hauptman, Pete, Stephen Lanham, Isabella Diaz, Stephanie Bradley, John Carp, Brian Brigman, Boz76, Jeff Hume, Percy Thrillington, David Staberski, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Broderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Teresa Brader, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and my man, Matt Phillips. Right, that is it. We are done with the plugs, everyone. And now it is time for us to pick up where we left off with our look at Chris Thomas, the producer of Run, Devil, Run. We'll be right back after these messages. The legendary Paul McCartney returns to the roots of rock and roll. This is the McCartney you love, and this is the new album you've waited for. Run, Devil, Run includes 12 of McCartney's hand-picked rock and roll favorites on CD. Order now and you'll receive this bonus original artist CD with four original recordings of songs featured on Run, Devil, Run. Run, Devil, Run. It's pure Paul McCartney. It's real rock and roll. And it's available now. Call the number on your screen now to order Paul McCartney's new album, Run, Devil, Run, and receive the original artist bonus CD, all for $17.98 plus shipping and handling, or send a check or money order to the address shown. Call now. Moving on to the 80s now, folks, and we have yet another decade where Chris Thomas is at the forefront of production, both with new talent as well as established prestige acts. The first of these is a little bit of both of those with Pete Townsend. Yes, that Pete Townsend, 
and it began with the album that I've been listening to most since starting the research for this episode, that is 1980's Empty Glass. Now, if you haven't already checked it out, I will provide a link down below for my full conversation with Andy Nichols on his YouTube channel, where we discuss Empty Glass in detail. It is a phenomenal record. I have my own copy on vinyl now. I love it that much. It truly is a masterpiece. And I cannot wait to play you its lead single, the delightfully, ambiguously sexual rocker, Rough Boys. Play it, Johnny. was another definitive success for Thomas's career. It got to number two on the Canadian album charts, number five on Billboard, eventually going platinum, and number 11 here in the UK. Its second single, Let My Love Open The Door, got to number five on the Canadian singles chart, number nine on Billboard singles chart, and only number 46 here in the UK. But still, a moderate hit in the States is like 17 hits in a row here in England, really, isn't it? Let's be real. Here's another Wikipedia quote for you all, folks. The album was rated number 57 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest albums of the 1980s. A Gibson poll rated it as number five amongst the greatest albums released by an artist who was previously in a successful band. Once again, can't really argue with that, can we? But clearly though, folks, as well as all the hits, there is something about Chris Thomas and the way he works that means artists not only want to work with him, but keep working with him. As Townsend would continue to pump out a further two albums with him, those being a pair of albums whose names do not at all sound controversial in 2023. They are 1982's All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes and 1985's White City, a novel. Then, in 1981, Thomas began an even longer-lasting and even more successful working relationship with a big name in Elton John. Yes, that Elton John. Indeed, this would be a new phase in both of their careers, whereby Thomas would be the default producer for Elton John, unless specified otherwise for a specific project. There would be breaks here and there, sometimes just for one album, sometimes for several, where Elton would go to other producers, but time and time again, he would go back to Chris Thomas. This working relationship began in 1981 with Elton's 15th studio album, The Fox, before then moving on to 1982's Jump Up, 
and then 1983's Too Low For Zero, which contained this smash hit single. Standing was a number one hit in Canada and Switzerland, number two in Ireland, three in Australia, four in the UK, and number 12 on US Billboard. Another notch in the old bedpost, eh, there, Chris? Carrying on with their successes, they worked again on 1984's Breaking Hearts, 1988's Reg Strikes Back, 1989's Sleeping with the Past, 1992's The One, a single song on the 1994 duets album. And finally, 1997's The Big Picture. There is another little collab that I will mention later when we get there. But yeah, anyway, there was a time when Elton John meant Chris Thomas and vice versa. This isn't the case anymore, but their work together is one of the iconic artist-producer relationships of the 80s and 90s. Like, we've seen Chris Thomas work with artists from like two or three albums, maybe even four, but with Elton John, it really is the outstanding milestone in his career. Like, if never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, is his Oscar for Best Picture, then his work with Elton John really is his Lifetime Achievement Award. Other names he would work with in this period include his work with Big Country, aka their actually popular period, an artist named Philip Rambo, who's another Brian Eno cohort, a little outfit called Chantage, which, according to Discogs, only ever released one thing ever, uh, a single track called It's Only Money, and a band called One the Juggler, or household names, obviously. Then, in 1984, we would go back to the idea of producers leaving sessions, though, rather than Chris being the young, intrepid producer picking up the pieces of the prima donna producer leaving the sessions, the tables were now turned, and now he was the established producer doing the walking out, as he would abandon the sessions for the Human League album Hysteria, and in a rather ironic turn, well, not really, but coincidentally, these sessions were later completed by another McCartney collaborator, Hugh Padgham. Thankfully, this year wasn't a complete write-off, though, as he would then go on to form another of his successful, long-standing working relationships. This time, it was the Australian band In Excess. The first album he did for them was called Listen Like Thieves, and he went straight to number one in Australia and number 11 in the States. Its lead single, What You Need, was also the band's first US top 10, reaching the number five spot. 
The song only existed in the first place though because at the end of the sessions, Thomas pressured the band by telling them that they did not yet have a hit single and because of that, they burnt the candle at both ends and came up with a hit single, as you do. But again, great guidance from Thomas there, great instincts. His next album with them was 1987's Kick and that was even more successful and is widely regarded as the band's most accomplished and popular record to date. In the States alone, it has been certified six times platinum by the RIAA and it peaked at number three on the Billboard 200. The album also spawned four US top 10 singles, including a number one, this number one to be precise. you tonight the lead single from the album and whilst it only got the, the coveted number one spot in the US aka the most profitable place it can go number one it still wasn't a nothing worldwide with number two spots in Canada the UK and Ireland number three in Australia and New Zealand number five in South Africa and number 10 in France uh, the album itself would get the number one spot though in Australia Canada and New Zealand number three in France, number four in the Netherlands, and number nine here in the UK. Yep, yes sir, another outright success for Thomas. And he would rejoin with them for a third and final time to record what was essentially their follow-up to Kick to capitalise on their success, the 1990 album X. As a surprise to no one, this album was also a smash hit, getting to number one in Australia, number two in New Zealand and the UK, and number five in the USA, with its first two singles all getting to the high up spots in the top ten all around the world. Remember at the start of the episode, everyone, when I told you that Chris Thomas was basically going to be involved in a load of projects that you had no idea about? Well, I really hope that we've reinforce that point by now <laughs> I think I think we've shown enough hits by now but there's still a couple to come as we move into the 90s this last little hurdle before we get to Run Devil Run itself and oddly enough in 1990 according to Discogs and please correct me if I'm wrong but apparently Chris Thomas is listed as the producer on Paul McCartney's Mama's Little Girl which was featured on the B-side of Put It There. But that has to be a typo, right? I mean, Mama's Little Girl is a Red Rose Speedway track, surely. 
Like, maybe he came back and helped Paul do a bit of production work on it after to include it on Put It There. I don't know. Because also on Discogs, Thomas is featured as the producer for Mama's Little Girl on several CD reissues of Wildlife. So, who knows? As we do enter the 90s, though, it is around this period where you do notice that Thomas is starting to scale back his operations a little bit more. And uh, despite doing a little bit of work with groups like Shakespeare's Sisters and Marcella Detroit, as well as a a band called Dave Stewart and the Spiritual Cowboys, the early 90s was a bit of a rest period. You know, he'd earned his laurels. He could sit back a bit and just work with a couple of established artists and a few interesting little side projects here and there. But he's really not stressing himself out, let's just say that. Though, in 1994, something very interesting happened indeed. Like, you know, when we covered Youth and he ended up on a couple of alright soundtrack albums that would have been somewhat lucrative for him? Well, Chris Thomas has taken that to the extreme with one of the most lucrative soundtrack albums to ever be on, and it was none other than The Lion King soundtrack. And how did that work exactly? Well, before you ask, no. Nothing that ended up in the final film would actually be produced by him. However, this was the period where Disney was getting famous established artists to work on their soundtracks. You know, you had Phil Collins on Tarzan, Stevie Wonder did a song for Mulan, and there was a notoriously uh, or infamously scrapped U2 soundtrack for The Emperor's New Groove in the year 2000. That's an interesting one indeed. But yeah, this was at the height of that. And what they would do is they would get the artist, the individual solo artist, to record and write the songs on their own and then to hand them over to Disney for the cast to then re-record them. This is where Chris Thomas comes in. He produced and mixed all of the original Elton John material, a.k.a all of the solo versions of Circle of Life, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, and Can You Feel the Love Tonight? everyone. Can You Feel the Love Tonight went to number four on the US Billboard charts, number one on the US Adult Contemporary charts, number one in France, number one in Canada, number one in Panama, number two in Sweden, number four in Austria and Norway, number nine in Australia, Ireland and Scotland, and number 14 in the UK, Germany and the Netherlands. Let's not even get into how successful the album was, 
And for context, the final four songs on the soundtrack are the Chris Thomas Productions. But yeah, this album was so big that not only was it a number one US Billboard smash success, but it was also the fourth highest selling album of the year in 1994, and then the 10th highest selling album of the year in 1995. Fuck me. Oh my God, that is a lot of albums sold. It was a number one album in Switzerland, in New Zealand, in Canada also, as well as number three in Australia, number four in Sweden, number five in Belgium, number six in the Netherlands, number seven in Germany, and apparently no UK release at all? That seems strange. It's getting almost boring to say this again, folks, but another smashing success, if you ask me. And we have at least one more before we get on to Run Devil Run. He has one last trick up his sleeve, and that is going to be another genre-defining album of a British era. This time, it's going to be Britpop. Yes, also, when we covered Youth, he produced one of the iconic singles of this period, Bittersweet Symphony, and we're going to see something similar again with Chris Thomas and his production on the 1995 album Different Class by the band Pulp. Continuing the idea of defining another genre, this really is a never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols for the 90s Britpop era. It also, like that album, didn't set the wider world on fire, but was earth-shattering and meta-defining here in the UK. You know, back when rock and roll was still actually important in music, you know, you, you can't underestimate how important this album was. So yeah, in terms of chart success, of course it topped here in the UK, but the only other place it made even the top 10 was Sweden at number seven. But it may be possible that this is just the most British album ever, and it just didn't translate anywhere else. Uh, I mean, let's just listen to the main single. This is Common People. She came from Greece, she had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at St. Martin's College, that's where I Imagine the vast majority of you out there likely have heard that before. But still, I do like that Thomas ended this particular arbitrary period that we're covering on a high note. Because after Run Devil Run, if I'm being honest, whilst he would have future hits like the debut album by Razorlight, for example, the story isn't half as interesting and he truly was winding down. But yeah, I think we have clearly established the pedigree of Chris Thomas by this point. And I think we can sign off on him at producing Run Devil Run. 
Oh, and actually, before we close out this segment, in 1996, just before he was to collaborate with McCartney once more, this whole thing deliciously comes around full circle, as Thomas would be credited as an artist a couple of times, finally, as a performer, during his earliest work with the Beatles, on the Beatles Anthology 3 album. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? And what would McCartney be hiring Chris Thomas for exactly? A producer who has proven time and time again that he is able to produce killer new fresh sounds to young and eager audiences. Someone who has a specific eye on future trends. He's going to get him to do an album of rock and roll covers. Which, okay, at first glance seems like Thomas might be a little overqualified or not being used to his best strengths. But it does make sense. First of all, if Thomas is winding down a little bit in this period, then this is a perfect, comparatively low-effort, low-commitment project for him to work on. And secondly, if Paul truly wants to achieve a modern or a more modern sound out of these songs that are sometimes half a century old, then he really can't go wrong with a choice like Chris Thomas. Of course, Thomas's own familial familiarity with Paul certainly helps in getting hired, especially when Paul is in this potentially sensitive frame of mind. But Chris Thomas has been consistently demonstrating just how versatile he is and how keen that ear is he has for spotting hits. He also has a continual proven track record with working with established legacy artists like Elton John, so Paul knows that he and all of the other dad bod motherfuckers who are going to who are going so Paul knows that he and all of the other dad bod motherfuckers who are going to be making up these sessions would be looked after and recorded in the best way possible. Clearly, when it comes to a project seemingly as straightforward and simple as Run Devil Run, Paul can only trust the most virtuosic and adept of producers because he can rely on Chris Thomas to get that exact sound he is looking for, be it punk rock or rock and roll. So what I did was I booked Abbey Road Studios, Studio 2, which is our old studio, for a week. I rang up some guys who I knew, two I didn't know, just, just thought, who, who'd be a good band? And asked a few people. Dave Gilmore was interested in doing on guitar, and he's an old friend, Dave, and I like his playing. Mick Green, who I'd worked with before, who used to be in Johnny's Kid and the Pirates, a British group, and he's a great rock and roll player. They're both great players, but different. Um, I knew I'd be on bass, which is how I used to work. I didn't swap instruments. I just sang and was on bass all week with the Beatles. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. We rang up Ian Pace out of Deep Purple. I stopped and said, you know, do you fancy it? He said, yeah. Got in touch with Pete Wingfield, who was a really good rock and roll pianist, good keyboard player, and said, you know, you fancy it. You said you didn't know Pete, but the rest of the guys were guys you knew? I, d I didn't know Pete Wingfield or Ian Pace. I'd never met either of those guys. Pete's the pianist and Ian's the drummer. I didn't, I didn't actually even speak to Pete. Uh, to Pete or Ian before they showed up. Producer rang them. So, now that we know who is producing the album, it's now time for us to move on to the players. Yes, the people who are actually going to be performing on the record itself. And, because this isn't McCartney 1, 2 or 3, we do indeed have a delightful little rogues gallery to go through today. 
some of whom are new faces, some of them are old ones, but all of them titans in their own fields. And in some cases, if not all of them, as we saw with the concert for George, some real quote-unquote musicians' musicians. Very much in the same way that Chris Thomas is overqualified for the material that they're going to be covering during these sessions, Paul has basically done the same for the band, as the lineup here is stacked. Like, out of all the little one-off kind of lineups Paul has ever done, this is weirdly, again, for an album of rock and roll covers, is as close to an accidental supergroup that he's ever got to. Starting off, we're going to go big or go home, as the next major name after McCartney on this album is one that I am sure for many people is comparable to him. Of course, I could only be talking about Dave Gilmore. Dave motherfucking Gilmore, of course, is the iconic member of Pink Floyd, who was a force behind all of their iconic albums, you know, from Dark Side of the Moon to The Wall, and once Roger Waters left the band in 87, he became their de facto leader. And he really does go back almost as far as Paul does, really, in terms of the music industry, having been busking Beatles covers in 65. And famously, in terms of Paul's story, he was recording Dark Side of the Moon at Abbey Road at the same time Paul was recording Red Rose Speedway. Now, despite my almost total lack of practical knowledge of Pink Floyd, though I did listen to Dark Side of the Moon the first time a couple of weeks ago whilst watching The Wizard of Oz, which was a great experience, I still know that he is widely regarded as one of the best and most influential guitarists of all time. Also, rather hilariously, Gilmore was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame three years before Paul was as a solo act. As we have already seen in family friend Chris Thomas as producer, Paul clearly wanted a lot of friendly, reliable faces to make up his impromptu rock and roll team, and in every interview for this album, Paul describes Gilmore as quote-unquote an old friend. We have actually seen Gilmore a couple of times on this podcast now in the past already, doing session work for Paul here and there over the years, but nothing all that lengthy, though he's clearly been impactful enough to have been invited back so many times. First of all, he was part of the Rockestra sessions, and so was therefore heard on Rockestra and So Glad to See You Here. Then, about half a decade later, Gilmore cropped up again in June-July 1984 for the Give My Regard to Broad Street sessions, and this was to record the semi-iconic solo for No More Lonely Nights, for which he gave his session fee to charity. Let's take a quick listen to that now, actually. No more lonely
I know I always trash this song, but I get that it is an important part of the canon, and I do agree that Gilmore's solo there is absolutely spellbinding, and it's easily the best thing in it. Does it save it from being a turkey in my eyes? Not at all, but a valiant effort nonetheless. Recently, Paul gave Gilmore a massive shout out in the lyrics book in the section covering this song. He wrote, I've known him since the early days of Pink Floyd. Dave is a genius of sorts, so I was pulling out all the stops. I admired his playing so much. I'd seen him around. I think he'd just done his solo About Face album, so I rang him up and said, would you play on this? It sounded like his kind of thing. Clearly, Paul was having a blast working with Gilmore during this period, and it wouldn't be long again before he called him up during the David Foster sessions in the September-October of 1984. During this time, Gilmore is credited with playing on I Love This House, Lindiana, and We Got Married. The first two are still kind of bonus tracks, and the last one wouldn't receive an official release until 1989, but clearly Paul liked it enough. Let's hear his solo on that one as well. has clearly been around the block and has tallied quite a few collaborations with Paul already, but again, never for an extended period of time and never on a full album. So this little gig is certainly a well-earned treat by Gilmore at this point, I'd like to say. Gilmore really is the number two on this album. He's the new Denny Lane figure at this point, with him appearing on and playing lead guitar on every song on the final album except maybe one where he plays, like, lap steel guitar. But yeah, when Gilmore himself spoke about this incredible experience, uh, it clearly wasn't lost on him. He said, I'm a kid, really. You get into Studio 2 at Abbey Road, and you're sitting there with Paul McCartney, and your guitar is plugged in. You think that's an ordinary day's work, but of course, it isn't. It's magical. Managing to persuade him to sing I Saw Her Standing There at the Cavern with me doing the, the John Lennon parts, it was absolutely fantastic. I've been in The Who, I've been in The Beatles, and I've been in Pink Floyd. Top that, motherfucker. Yeah, I think it's safe to say he enjoyed himself, don't you? In second place, for our second guitarist, we come to another name that kind of sounds like we're hearing it for the first time, but it actually isn't, and that name is Mick Green. As to be expected, Mick Green was a solid rock guitarist in his day, both live and in session work, and throughout that time he played with the likes of The Pirates, both with and without Johnny Kidd, Billy J. Kramer and The Dakotas, as well as Cliff Bennett and The Rebel Rousers. Only one of those names means half of anything to me, but 
I'm sure there are loads of you out there who are fans of those three bands and that I'm the idiot, but oh well, never heard of them. Moving on. As I somewhat alluded to though, we have indeed seen Mick on this podcast before, and oddly enough, it was for a very similar type of album project. Yes, that album was indeed Chobber BCCP or Snobber VCCR, whatever, uh, where he indeed played guitar on eight old rock and roll covers for that session, including one that I don't remember talking about on that episode called It's Now or Never that ended up on an Elvis tribute album. And I think I'm going to use that as the hint song at the end of this episode, actually. Be sure to check that out. But yeah, shock horror. Mick Green's last appearance on a Paul McCartney album was another collection of old rock and roll standards, so it's obvious what Paul thinks his strengths are. Whenever McCartney needs a good old-fashioned rock and roll guitar sound, he goes back to Mick Green. Just as a little aside though, I do imagine they probably are old friends, he and Paul, as apparently, uh, the story goes, that Mick Green was in a skiffle band called The Wayfaring Strangers, formed with his schoolmates Johnny Spence on the bass and Frank Farley on drums, and apparently they came second in a Battle of the Bands style competition to none other than The Quarrymen. In terms of credits, Mick Green is featured on this album uh, as an electric guitarist 15 times. Coming in hot in third place, we have Pete Wingfield, who was one of two gentlemen who did the keyboards for this album. Again, sadly, Wingfield is not a name that I'm particularly familiar with, and that is mostly because this album is his one-time McCartney collaboration, because that's all I know, obviously. But I can tell you that I have certainly heard all of the people he has worked for, which is a pedigree in itself. That's more than Mick Green can say. As a session musician, Pete Wingfield did some uh, piano and or keyboards for Edwin Starr, Colin Blundstone, Chris Rea, Dr. Feelgood, Bonnie Tyler, John Martin, Shakin Stevens, and many more. He also did some backing vocals on Elton John's 1985 album, Ice on Fire, which is not one of the ones that Chris Thomas produced, ironically. And in his early days, he was the live keyboardist for B.B. King, and then later for The Hollies uh, from 75 till 80. Then, as a producer, not only did he do work for The Pasadenas, Dexys Midnight Runners, and Alison Moyet, as well as producing the iconic album Sunshine on Leith by The Proclaimers, but he also produced a lot of early hip-hop, like The Sugar Hill Gang and The Kane Gang. So yeah, another clear-cut member of the music industry intelligentsia, and there's no doubt why he's on this album. Wingfield is credited with playing piano eight times, the Wurlitzer once, and the Hammond organ twice. Next in line, we have the second pianist for these sessions in the form of Geraint or Geraint Watkins. Watkins was another of these stalwart session musicians that a good-for-nothing sprog such as myself had never heard of. But once again, ignorance aside, you take one quick glance at their wiki or their discogs and you just instantly get why Paul chose them in the first place. Of course, like Wingfield, his discography is vast, but in terms of the bigger names, Watkins had worked with Bill Wyman, formerly of the Rolling Stones, 
Nick Lowe, Shaken Stevens. Why is it always Shaken Stevens? And many more. And in terms of the McCartney circle, specifically, he worked on one of Carl Perkins' last albums, which is a particularly notable credit for this project for sure. In total, Watkins is credited with playing piano twice on this album, and both Piano and The Wurlitzer on another third track. Then, rounding out this double set of instrumentalists now, we have two drummers in a row. The first of which is Ian Pace. That is a name that even I recognised as one of great import, for Ian Pace, of course, was the drummer for the iconic rock band Deep Purple. Yes, that Deep Purple. And so I really don't need to go into too much expansive detail to emphasise why this guy is cool enough and qualified enough and famous enough to be here in these sessions. I think that speaks for itself. Don't you? However, as this article from loudersound.com shows, this was hardly Pace's first ever Beatle experience. He details, George Harrison and I were great pals. He lived just a couple of miles down the road, and our kids grew up together. I'd met Ringo, but never McCartney. So, I got the call. Would you like to do the date at Abbey Road? I mean, what do you say? I went on the Monday morning, knowing full well that if I was crap, I wouldn't be there on Tuesday. And the whole thing was done in five days, like the Beatles did their early stuff. 10am till 5.30, one o'clock stop for lunch. Playing with McCartney was glorious, Pace said adding that he thinks Macca is an underrated bass player. Everybody thinks of him as a singer-composer, but boy, what a bass player. It's not that he plays a lot, but what he does play is exactly in the right place. You listen to every Beatle record, he and Ringo, it feels great. It's not... That's not luck, that's God-given talent. He was so easy to play with. Ian Pace, in total, has 13 drum credit songs, on Run Devil Run. Then, for our final musician, we have another name that we've already come across on this podcast, and that is one Mr. Dave Mattax on the drums. Now, Mattax was essentially a go-to drummer for Paul in the 80s if somehow he needed a drummer to play when either he or Ringo couldn't. On Tug of War, he was the drummer for Dress Me Up As A Robber, for Pipes Of Peace, he did the drums for through our love, for Give My Regards to Broad Street, he drummed on the re-recording of The Long and Winding Road, and his latest, most contemporary McCartney contribution was in the David Foster Sessions in 84, where he did the drums for Lindiana, I Love This House, and We Got Married. And for anyone keeping track, yes, David Gilmour was in the sessions for all of those songs as well on lead guitar, so that means that in a way, Run Devil Run is a little Dave Foster session reunion more than anything. Still, Dave Mattax wasn't the main drummer for these sessions, and he only has three credits on the final album. Now, some of you eagle-eared listeners out there may have noticed that we are awfully doubled up on a lot of instruments here with this lineup. And whilst I know that deep down a load of you would have preferred this to have been a Rockestra-esque mega band just to hear me rant about it, if anything. But that is not the case, thankfully, slash sadly. I know I'm not supposed to keep referring back to it, but just like Chopper VCCR, there were two different distinct lineups for two different distinct separate recording sessions 
for Run Devil Run. Of course, it wouldn't be a Paul McCartney rock and roll covers album without him having to swap at least a couple of bandmates in and out due to what I can only presume is scheduling conflicts. As far as I can tell, this is how it goes. First of all, you've got the core, which is Dave Gilmore, Mick Green, and of course, Paul. They are the consistent, quote-unquote, official members of this little band because they appear on every track and appear live at every performance. Then, when it comes to the piano players and the drummers, there is a clear cut-off point. The March sessions had Ian Pace as the drummer and Pete Wingfield on the keys, and then the May sessions had Dave Mattax on the drums and Geraint Watkins on the keys. So I showed up on the Monday morning. I'd got out cassettes of the songs I wanted to do. First of all, I just thought, what songs do I really love? What, what songs are fixed in my memory, you know, from when I was a kid? And I would think, oh, I remember being on the fur ground and that song was playing. So I thought, got to try that one. I remember loving that song and that was a B-side. So I got together about 25 songs that I just remembered. We didn't do them with the Beatles, but I knew I liked them. So I had this whole store of memories of these things. So I, I just got a manila envelope with all the words, and I sat at home exactly as I'd done when I was 15. And in that case, it was a 45 record and a dancette. Now it was a cassette. I didn't get any of the sheet music. This is all later. I'd be getting the first line down, stop the cassette, write it down play the next line, write it down. I thought, I haven't done this since I was 15. And it was a great feeling. It was like, wow, I love this. And what I did on this Monday morning, said hello to people, got in tune, made sure everything was working. 10.30, I just would look through the Miller envelope. I just would find the first song I really fancied, one or two of them, maybe we'll do that later. They go, ooh, fancy this one. Pull it out, say to everyone, now, anyone know, no other baby? And they all go, no. Because, you know, some of these were quite obscure. So they say, no. I said, well, okay, here's how it goes, exactly as we used to. It only took 15 minutes to show them the song. And these guys are such good musicians that then we just split to our various instruments and we just try it. And we'll go and listen to it once, go down and do a couple of takes, get a good take, and it was like, okay, next song, ching. And that was it. And we raced through them. And at the end of the week, we'd done like 19 songs, you know. Okay, now that we know who is going to play on this album and we know who is going to produce the songs, it is time for us to round out this episode with a little segment about the songs themselves, how Paul came to choose them, and why. As per the usual, I'm going to talk about the individual songs in a bit more detail in the recording session segment, in the next episode, the second episode, and then I'll be covering my thoughts on those songs in the third episode, but... I just wanted to take some time to look at why Paul chose these songs specifically for this album. And why am I doing this exactly? I can hear some of you asking, especially considering the fact that Paul seems to spend a lot of the interviews talking about this exact topic, you know, what these songs mean to him. Well, I do believe, yes, I am going to be doing this. I do believe it indeed ties back to what we were talking about at the start of the episode with Linda incontrovertibly and I'm going to demonstrate that for you now. Of course there is the surface level narrative as to why these songs were chosen. Of course you can't deny the fact that Chubba BCCP or Snobber VCCR did come first and somewhat limit the selection of songs that 
Paul could choose for Run Devil Run. I mean, there were differences, like Chobber is specifically an album based on a future tour, and so it's going to be stocked with that kind of thing. But I do like how it forces Paul to dig a little deeper into his childhood record collection, because not only does it result in a track listing that is a little fresher and unique and educational, but it is one a lot more personal to Paul. Though, ironically, according to Paul's own testament in Mojo magazine in October of 1999, my attempts at ascribing any sort of meaning to this overall song selection is seemingly moot, as he says, I just kind of dredged up my memory and came up with a very arbitrary list, because I've got millions of rock and roll songs that I love. Most of them I've got on tape and did what I used to do, got a bit of paper and pencil and transcribed the lyrics. It was a great buzz, because I literally hadn't done that particular exercise since I was a kid. I felt like I was 15 again, sitting there copying the lyrics to Chuck Berry songs, Buddy Holly and Fats Domino. Then, with Paul being Paul, he brings it back around to the Beatles again in the same breath, and he actually links it better to the question than he did in that bit of audio that I played for you at the start. He says, Those songs were like where the Beatles would show up in the early days at the Aintree Institute and say, there'd be three or four bands on on the bill. We'd be due on third, and the band who was on second would go on and do our entire act. Blue Suede Shoes, Long Tall Sally, what I'd say. And then the act's gone. There was this terrible moment. Fucking hell, what are we going to do? Well, we'd better play them better. But to avoid that, we started looking for B-sides. Things like Bo Diddley's The Old Grandpappy and If You've Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody which was off an old James Ray record that George had. We started to find these lesser-known songs so that the other bands wouldn't have them. And with that, I bet you all think it's all clear-cut, super-duper simple, right? The whole thing was likely just an exercise in trimming down a list of millions of songs from his early Beatles days that he wanted to record, and the only reason that they are old rock and roll songs specifically and not any other genre or any other period is because... Paul just so happens to have been young at that time, and so any album from his youth would always have been these kind of songs, right? Well, not so fast, because it is time to tie things back now, and without getting too armchair psychology-ish, the most important part of that quote for me is McCartney talking about how he felt like a 15-year-old again. Actually, he mentions that in the interview at the start as well. And, like, I knew Paul was regressing, for a sense of comfort and nostalgia with this album, but I didn't know we were like we were going that far back into his life. Why is 15 an important age? Why am I highlighting it? Well, it is literally the age that he was when he met John Lennon. Uh, uh, at 15, he joined the Quarrymen. It was also the year after the death of his mother, Mary McCartney, the last most important woman in his life. And so, whilst it might seemingly be an arbitrary age, that Paul would use. Uh, for me, it really signifies a time when Paul was dealing with death by playing rock and roll. The parallels are just too strong for me at this point. Run Devil Run is nothing new in the McCartney playbook. He has already done it before. We're going to cover this more in detail in part two, but the recording ethos for this album was also very Beatle-esque, and Whilst we know that Paul always goes back to the Beatles in terms of references for stories, it is clear that this pre-fame, pre-songwriting period of his life, where he's just in a band, just playing rock and roll, and clearly having the time of his life, putting 
uh, a recent tragedy behind him with hope for the future is something that stuck with him and trying to recreate that might offer him a sense of mental comfort. This is another moment where Paul is indeed trying to get back at a time of emotional stress. And so he's choosing songs that have no association with his life with Linda. He's not going to do a covers album where he does a whiter shade of pale or anything like that. He's going back to a time where he's young and free of the responsibilities of his modern life. In a sense, the songs that he is choosing for Run Devil Run kind of reflect a bit of a, a midlife crisis almost. And it's not just the covers either. The same can be said for the original tracks, as they too are not free from the yoke of Linda's influence over this album. When talking in Mojo magazine, Paul said, I already had one called What It Is that was sort of bluesy that I thought might be good to try. It was one that I'd written for Linda, and so there was some sentimental attachment to that. I thought I'd throw them in and try a version. Chris thought it was a good idea to try some new ones, but I thought it might be tricky to try and make them fit. While we were making the album, as we were playing Run Devil Run back, one of the guys said, Whose record was this man? So that was a good sign. It was proof that it fitted. At first, I did find it a little incongruous that Paul would break the theme of this being a covers album by inserting a track that is not only an original one, but like directly about Linda. Though it didn't take me long to realise that this is probably the only way he was going to be able to communicate any ideas about Linda at all during these sessions. You know, no matter how hard he tried to keep Linda off his mind during these sessions, he just couldn't. And so any opportunity to insert a new song probably would have resulted in a song about Linda. It was just always going to happen. And so if he was going to communicate, obviously it would not be through any direct statements. And so you have to kind of look at the songs he did end up including and figure out why. And for me, at least, they are all ones that directly tie to Linda. Maybe it's me spotting patterns where they don't exist, but, you know, hear me out. You've got Run Devil Run, a song inspired by a day out that Paul had out with James, you know, a baby that he and Linda made together. There's What It Is, which is the love song written for Linda. And then you've got a song literally called Try Not To Cry, which may very well have been written during Linda's illness. I mean, am I taking crazy pills here or are these dots starting to connect for the rest of you out there too? Whilst the inclusion of these songs kind of messes with the overall subconscious concept of the album that I established earlier, it does still totally fit in with the conscious one. Like, okay, Paul, you're gonna have some originals. They are going to be about Linda. This album's for Linda. It all kind of still fits. But if I haven't already drilled this in enough, folks, there is nothing to do with the inception of this album that isn't in some way to do with the passing of his wife, Linda McCartney. And on that bright note, everyone, yes, we do indeed come to the end of this first part of our look at Run Devil Run. Thank you all, everyone, for joining me so far. I hope you've all been enjoying it. I hope you've all been reveling in the fact that I am playing a lot more music on this show now. I don't know how that's happened. It's probably just influence from that big Denny Lane episode. 
I also know that a lot of this episode was just one big excuse to do a Chris Thomas deep dive and play some different music, but hey, what are you going to do? Sue me. <laughs> but yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be trying to keep up with the more consistent content. This shortened episode is part of that, but it's still pretty long because, hey, Paul or nothing is Paul or nothing. Next time, we're going to be obviously doing part two of Run Devil Run, where we're going to go through all of the recording sessions for the albums. We're going to go through the histories and play some samples of all of the original tracks that Paul is covering. We're going to go through all the sales, the promotion, the artwork, critical and fan reception. All of that, plus at least three digressions, which will then bring us into episode three, where I'll be going through all of the songs with a guest. And then for episode four of this series, me and a previous guest of the podcast and a previous guest of Maka in your attic will be going through the Cavern Club gig. So yes, we will indeed be doing a four-parter for Run Devil Run. Anyway, enough of that. Let's wrap this baby up. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Harry, Harry Krishna. Play us out, Denny. It's now or never Come hold me tight Kiss me my darling Be mine tonight Tomorrow Be too late It's now or never My love When I first saw you With your smile so tender My heart was captured My soul surrendered I'd spent a lifetime Waiting for the right time Now that you need The time is here At last
Oh, 